welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy. Pod Sequentialism is, of course, recorded here at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles on Sunset Boulevard, right near the Hollywood West Hollywood line. Pod Sequentialism is also brought to you by the Pop Sequentialism exhibition of comic book art and the catalog, which immortalized that very first exhibition, served a bit as a price guide and kind of set the pricing uh, moving forward for uh, some of the most important collaborators, uh, pencilers, inkers, and writers working in the comics medium in heroic fiction. Also, we are brought by La Luz de Jesus Gallery, which is very interesting that we should actually have a artist who is on the walls at La Luz de Jesus currently, Deirdre Sullivan Beeman. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. You're very welcome. And, uh, of course, La Luz de Jesus Gallery is inside the Soap Plant Wacko Superstore in Los Feliz. And I have to give a shout out to my own gallery, the one that I own with my wife, which is Gallery 30 South. So at gallery30south.com, currently exhibiting... Torben Ulrich, um, legendary tennis player, jazz musician, philosopher, and his paintings very much uh, capture movement in the way that the Edward Rebridge photo studies did uh, a generation uh, prior. And uh, if you are familiar with Torben Ulrich, you may be familiar with him in the documentary Some Kind of Monster, as his son is Lars Ulrich of the band Metallica. But uh, we've got uh, Deirdre here today because um, actually right after she leaves uh, this recording session, even though this episode will air uh, too late for you to enjoy this. Um, she will be going back over to La Luz de Jesus to do a walkthrough of her exhibition. And when this episode does run, will be, I believe, on the final day of the exhibit. So as you hear it in the morning, you'll still be able to, to make it over and see the show. But uh, we also keep an archive of all the exhibitions on the La Luz de Jesus website. Although I have to say that already, with uh, still a week to go, there's only three available pieces uh, that you could buy in her show because everything else is sold. And this is not unusual that usually um, Deirdre's pieces all sell, which makes her unnatural for me to exhibit, makes my job easy. But um, I thought it'd be great to have, have Dion because... She's working, number one, in egg tempera, which is a very old painting style. Um, a lot of uh, Da Vinci worked in egg tempera, and yeah. it's not as common anymore. It's a kind of difficult medium, and it's it captures a real specific luminosity. So I wanted to talk to you about, number one, um, when did you decide that you were going to do art for a living? Um that's a good question. It was more recent, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, about seven years ago, yeah, I decided that I was going to take a stab at this. I actually grew up with a mother that was an artist. Mm -hmm. And I did well in high school with art, got a scholarship to Pratt, turned it down to go to USC Film School. Wow. So I sort of took a different routes. I was trying to stay away from what mom did. Right. And I wanted to do my own thing. Yeah. Um, but ironically, I feel like the, the circle went completely around and here I am doing truthfully what I love. I, I feel like I've always loved it and I was sort of <laughs> taking side routes. Right. Well, well, you mentioned USC film school. So you went to film school ostensibly to go into film. And yes. so... What, what, what were you working on? What were you doing? Well, I was more on the art side of it. Um, I did some scenic work, um, you know, very low-budget kind of films. Ironically, 
there was another sort of curve from from there, which was I was working at um, Universal, mm-hmm. and uh, Mar Manis at the time was a VP there and somebody I knew. And she had asked me to do a to design an event for Universal Studios. So mm-hmm. who could turn that down? Right. So then, for about fourteen years after that, I did event design. So I had very large scale events. Um, I did openings for the Getty. I did the Japanese American Museum opening. I wow. did. Um, I don't know, Sotheby's, American Express, the state of Texas, George Bush was actually yeah. my boss. Wow. Um, let's George W. Yeah, George, George W. Bush. I even have his, um, well, I, I think I eventually tossed it, but I had for a while his business card. Yeah. Which was sort of bizarre. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I took a roundabout way, and then um, about 14 years ago, I decided I really... I loved art, and truthfully, event design is a very intense business. It yeah. sort of, you can hit a wall very fast. Again, this is this is so funny. So I, I did not know that that was part of of your um, of your job history, and just now, as we were recording a, a couple episodes back to back, and last night we we recorded one that will probably be the last that runs actually, even though it was the first recorded. That I, we were talking about event coordinators, and I was saying, you know, that event coordinators have to be successful. Event coordinators have to be really, really intelligent. And you know, we we're talking about Marion Davies in in the last episode um, because the the writer of the Stoker and Wells uh, comic, which um, was kickstarting last week and it was coming to an end last week, um, a writer named Stephen Peros had written the cats the cats meow. Mm-hmm. Which um, is one of the only films to depict Marion Davies in a favorable light, and um, and she was, a, from all accounts, a really nice person. But because most people think that that character in Citizen Kane is the real Marion Davies, right. she's been maligned for you know <laughs> decades. And what what we talked about is the fact that she was the hostess at um, Hearst's Castle. And that oh, right. she was sure, in charge of, of all of the events. And it's like you couldn't have been this not very intelligent, marginal person and have been able to do that for decades. Right. And right. Um, and I've, I've always, you know, had nothing but massive respect for people who are event coordinators because I've certainly I, – I run events all the time, but I don't run huge events like that. Mm-hmm. And it, to see a huge event run smoothly is – um, from the outside, I think a lot of people think that all events run smoothly and that they kind of run themselves. And of course, anybody who's actually in them, number one, feels like almost nothing runs smoothly. Right. And yeah. that if you can even reach, you know, 80% a goal that you're doing pretty well, but that most of the time, and especially when, you, when you're really good at it, everybody just thinks it, it's, it's, that's the way it was supposed to be. Well, I always had a trick to it. I just, you plan, 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 and then you just let it be and let it becomes go, yeah. its own thing yeah. and you can't control it but it's funny Marion Davis didn't she have an elephant that was a pet there was I thought there was an elephant that Probably. ran around I mean they, they had I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised if they had a unicorn up there to be <laughs> honest but the um, you know the thing about the Hearst estate and one of the most beautiful pieces of property in the world uh, sitting on acres and acres of the most beautiful part of the the California countryside uh, and they donated a ton of it to the state of California and it was an ironclad um, agreement that allowed the state of California to take it over, but they were now responsible for maintaining it, and they can never sell it. 
Right. You know, and it's a lot of times they find ways to defund things so that they can sell things as happened to that museum in, in Pennsylvania. But, um, you know, in the case of Hearst, I mean, it, it was an ironclad agreement. And part, the family still owns the cattle operation. And so Hearst Steaks are among the best steak you can buy. Wow. You know, in, in the know U.S. That. And it's all organic and it's all chemical free. And I mean, their beef jerky is the best beef jerky I think I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Not that I'm a huge beef jerky fan, but I, I, I've been known I've been known to nibble. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, it's any type of large scale event um, comes with just amplify if you've ever thrown a party, a birthday party, and the stuff that you have to do. Now amplify that times however many more guests are going to be there, and how much more important, you know, from um, a business reliance standpoint and a product development um, brand value that is. Right. And you get an inkling of how difficult it is to to run an event for Universal Studios or for you know the state of Texas. Right. Right. Now, um, but I sort of try to apply what I've learned from that business into the art business, truthfully. Yeah. So, um, well, you're great with deadlines. <laughs> I got to say, you know, I work with a lot of artists and a lot of artists are not particularly very good with deadlines. You're always, you know, we, we booked your show a year out, I think. Yeah. About a year, a year out. out and yeah. we figured, well, how much time do you need? And we, we picked a month and and just work towards it. And so you, you knew the, the keys to hit. Now, we always give a contract that has dates and stuff on it, and usually that date passes, and then I call them up and I'm like, hey, where's that <laughs> thing that me? you said that right. you were going to send on this? And Oh, yeah, um, can I have an extension? You, you send it ahead of time. It's like, is it too early to send this? Is it okay <laughs> if I post this? No, you can do that. It's fine. So, um, I, yeah, I think there is a certain... No matter how you come at being a professional artist, honestly, I think that there's an advantage to, if you've gone to art school, there's that advantage that you've gone through the crit process um, relentlessly. Right. You know, that you right. go through this daily tearing down of your ego and flushing it down the toilet. And then, you know, um, you plant uh, you plant something in the backyard and that grows and someone else cuts it down. I mean, it's like whatever analogy you want to use for having some, for having your, your ego debased on a daily basis, that's what, um, what art school does. And that gives you a thick skin so that you can kind of just develop your style and you either develop resistance to criticism at a certain level or you embrace um, criticism and you start to evaluate which criticism is good for you and which isn't. And then there's that other thing, which is if you come from a very professional track and you're working with uh, within a professional environment on a team that you also become very easy to work with because you're used to the fact that if one person falls out of the system that everybody else has to pick up that slack and work, that you have a, a kind of big picture appreciation of what goes into the necessity of selling your artwork, that it's not right. just creating work and hanging it on a wall and, and everybody claps and goes home, that the idea is if you're working with a gallery to sell work, that they want to sell work, and if they don't sell your work, you don't get that opportunity again. So um, it's interesting that you turn down Pratt, which is perhaps one of the four or five best, definitely the, the four best illustration schools in the United States, but also one of the four four to eight best art schools and one of the best schools to have a degree from. Right. And then you go to USC a school film that school. has, <laughs> which is the best <laughs> film school in the world. And, um, and uh, therefore to make that circle back is almost kind of like, well, of course you made the right decision. 
right? I mean, <laughs> well, I have to tell you, it's interesting because I think even in my paintings, there's a filmic side to them. Mm-hmm. And I had an amazing teacher at film school named Bruce Block, who I think actually started IMAX Theater, believe it or not. He uh-huh. was he was one of the geniuses behind that. But his class on composition, to this day, I use it. Yeah. And it's unbelievable how profound that class was for me. And it's funny, talking back to other people that had gone to USC and had Bruce Block, everybody, hands down, just raves about him Mm. but it's interesting because you know he was also talking about how the camera moves and stuff like that obviously that part of it because i i think of you know a picture is a thousand you know worth a thousand thousand words so for me i have to you know nick some of the moving camera bit but i use a lot of flat space in my work which is one of the things he talked about and there was a movie that i'd love that i first saw in film school which is the jane fonda barbarella movie yeah and there's flat based on Italian from Eddie comic books. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And um, so I sort of fell in love with that movie. And part of that movie, I have to say, has been translated into my work presently. That's very interesting that you say that because, and actually, the image that I think we're going to use for this episode is the bondage image. Yes. You know, yes. and um, that there is a bit more of adult content in the in this series of work that we've got up right now in the girls 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 show and often your work is it's all get a a femininity to it you do a lot of live model uh, Mm -hmm. photography and then painting and so you're you're handpicking the the women that you're going to paint that are going to become your paintings whether they're girls or women and you've you paint um you know the female across the spectrum of age and in different contexts and so there's always been this kind of um, burst and appreciation of femininity, but it's always been, to an extent, um, a nice presentation. And I, I stretch the word nice out because I think that there's this expectation of what is nice and what is not nice. And right. that is something that you play with. It's like, oh, here's this nice presentation this and you'll have this subversive element in there that's not necessarily recognizable immediately that is part of the symbolism of of the composition exactly. that you're using exactly. and in this series you've gone a little bit even more obvious and i think it's sort of a sign of the times you know that you started working on this this series um around the election well i have to say it's funny i i really try not to govern my work mm-hmm. and i try really hard just like I do keep a dream diary and yeah. and I do a lot of thumbnails of ideas that pop into my head. And so I have this one book that's sort of the book that I carry with me everywhere and don't really ever want anyone to see it. It's very private. <laughs> but this time I totally agree. There was such an environment politically out yeah. there that I couldn't help. It, it went into my subconscious. It yeah. had to. And I feel like I, I and I really again have to emphasize I wasn't planning on, but I almost think things became a little more political than I had planned in mm-hmm. this group of work. And regarding feminism, I think it came out stronger than yeah. I had even anticipated it was going to. Not until I really see my work finished. I don't even many times come up with a title for the work mm-hmm. because I never know. I, I just keep going and going with what. I'm trying to get out. And then many times I step back and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's not about that. It's about this. Yeah. And I'm always sort of stunned myself. Or it can be about that, but maybe there's different layers to it. Sure. 
And that's what's always shocking to me. It's almost like a dream. Like if you analyze your dreams, what starts to happen is you realize, oh my gosh, that even relates to that. And that's even, it just, it's astounding to me. Well, you think about also the way that brains are hardwired and that fetishes are places on your brain Mm -hmm. that are located very close to actual pleasure centers. So if your wiring and the way that you think somehow connects one synapse of where your pleasure center is to another synapse which captures a area of imagery, whether it's I don't know. It's, you could pick any fetish. It's like um, I think the most common one, especially we, we seem to we seem to get a lot of it at Lulu's Day Zeus, <laughs> is that there's um, foot fetish, right? And apparently that's like right next to like that synapse is directly next yeah. to the pleasure cortex. Interesting. And so there's a lot of wiring that goes back and forth that set people off so that when they think of this one thing, it automatically connects over. But there's a lot of other stuff around that circle. So if, if you're thinking of the pleasure center as, say, a a circle on a piece of paper, then you know the um the 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 part of your brain that both feels um, major sensation and when you feel a major sensation, you usually picture where it's coming from. You've got the foot is right here. Then you've got um, things like food that are right, it's right there, like mm-hmm. very, very close. And um, there's also suffocation, you know, like wow. um, that um, the the signal that sends of losing breath or losing um, the ability to breathe cleanly is also wherever that, that, that synapse pops is also very close to the pleasure center. So all these things that don't seem to be related become very related within certain people. And so it makes sense that when you're putting together um, a body of work, and especially if it's coming from a dream diary, that the subconscious comes through, that you may be pulling something that subconsciously drifts through that is completely unrelated to the message necessarily in the Mm -hmm. artwork that someone else looks at and they connect completely differently to. Right. And so that sends a signal. So in titling work, sometimes you are robbing the viewer of an of an ability to just see something with yeah. with their own context but on the flip side of that an untitled piece is much harder to sell well it's funny cuz my mother going back to my mother all her works untitled mm-hmm. and i remember as a kid i didn't get that they never yeah. added up to me so what's interesting is i feel like with my work I don't know if you've noticed, but the titles are sort of simple yeah. titles. Um, so, you know, I have Giant Girl. And yeah. so in this show, because it was Girls, 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 I wanted to make sure everything ended with Girl. Girl, yeah. Like the uh, Ramones. Yeah, exactly. So um, I try to make it simple because I used to come up with a little more complicated titles. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there was one title years ago on a piece that almost sold and then didn't sell. And I think the title, when the person heard the t- they they literally had the red dot on, and then they heard the title. And they changed their and mind. And they changed their mind. And I'd never seen that happen before. Yeah. And so I decided I'm just going to go not as simple as my mother did, because that it just, again, didn't make sense, but just as simple as I could. Mm-hmm. Because I do think it's important for the viewer to have a, sort of a piece of them, they see a piece of themselves or they yeah. connect somehow. Yeah. With the work, and I think they're going to have their own story yeah. within the work, and I think that's super important. I mean, it's always interesting to me, like even in this show where there's 14 pieces, 
I was, I'm always stunned how some people just gravitate to one, another person gravitates to another one, yep. and another person, like another one, and they seem to feel like that's the best. Yeah. And then they'll say things to you like, this yeah. one's your favorite, isn't it? <laughs> and you say, yes, no matter what piece they're pointing to. And then you, you, know, you can kind of look away and you can say yes, and you can look at the right one. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's, it's in, the, in the pursuit of preserving for them how they feel about a piece. Yes. But again, like, um, titling is also, just from a general archivist point of view, makes it much easier to, for people to refer to your work. Mm-hmm. And so if you're building a brand then titles become very important because people can say, oh, I like this piece called this mm-hmm. or I like that piece called that. And untitled work becomes a nightmare for an archivist when you're putting together, you know, um, a catalog resume and, or, or any type of, of um, you know, document that's, that says, well, these are the pieces and this is the year it was produced. And I think that a lot of people who work on titles also, they'll date them. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes the thing. But if they're not keeping a separate ledger of the dates and the pieces, then right. you don't know how many there are. And then that right. can cause problems down the line of, That's interesting. of officiating them and, and um, legitimizing them. So, um, and of course now everything is hitting, hitting online. So there's at least this other aspect of it having a provenance. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've also you you do prints occasionally, not that often, and you've done I, a couple of products. Well, it's interesting. I I, I I've been wanting to do more prints because they seem to do well. Mm-hmm. It's really time commitment. I'm yeah. feeling, and it's like how many do you print? You know, it's <laughs> this is this is the problem that everybody has. And I I think when people listen to this show, and and a lot of what we do is we kind of peel back the DIY aspect of mm-hmm. of whatever it is that that someone does in the creative arts, and why I think it was great that we. We spent a little time on on, on the lead in talking about event management. That um, that for creative people, there are a lot of careers they just never think about of stuff that they can do that right. are creative endeavors that can satisfy that creative curiosity and pay bills, mm-hmm. which is all important. You know, because you'll start to hate what you do yeah. if you're unable to live comfortably. And I think part of great creation comes out of joy. Some people argue that there's a lot of great art that comes out of misery. Maybe true. I, I can't. Uh, I can't say. Uh, nobody can say honestly whether or not it would be better if they weren't miserable. But um, happy artists live longer, <laughs> right? And so they produce more work, and maybe that's good. But the the other, you know, side of that is that in that DIY aspect, when you're looking at something like prints, it's like people ask me this all the time. It's like, well, should I do prints? And my answer is always never make a print available of a painting that's, that hasn't sold. That's interesting. Because right. somebody who might love it so much that they want to hang it on their wall won't buy it if they can buy something cheaper mm-hmm. and they can satisfy yeah. that, that ownership, whatever that is. I mean, owning art is a very, we could do two hours on, on what does it mean to own art, you know, especially if that art is is available in other formats for people to look at and then is it pride of ownership is it like bragging rights um you know there are people that do commissions and they don't want their people to to show their commission to the world so there's there's a whole bunch of reasons why people buy art and collect it and want to have it but with prints it's it occupies space not just time in producing them I mean, I think a lot of people are going to, you know, they'll send the file out to a printer and then they'll they'll QC it once and it's like, okay, good to go. And yeah. then, like, 
do you make 50 do you make 20 right. do you make five right. do you make five thousand it depends on on how many you know you can sell in a certain amount of time and then the price has to has to fit in there so it's how many can you make and how much does it have to cost right and then on top of that what is it worth to you personally to have your work out there are you watering down the need for an original if there's so many of of a popular image and you know we've we've worked very closely with uh jose rodolfo luis Ontiveros, who's the guy that does the disney the pop culture stuff look at just the princesses kissing princesses oh and, yeah and I the princess kissing mm-hmm. princes and we talked him out of ever doing prince and he did a show in france and did prince and i thought it was a, a big mistake that um now people who otherwise might have saved to buy right paintings <clears throat> could just buy prints of these pieces that they already knew and loved i mean i'd pretty much told people well, you can't own that because he doesn't do prints and there's also the danger of, of doing editions of other people's intellectual property, which I don't think is as big a deal these days as it perhaps once was, but that you still have ramifications, you know, to doing right. that type of right. thing. So, right. like, when, when you've done editions, how many have you done? The first time I did it, I felt like I did too many. I believe I did. Um, it was the Black Swan piece mm-hmm. um, that you guys sold, and... It just it, it sold so fast, and I just yeah. felt like more people wanted it. And I made my money back right away. But I think I did 50, which I thought was too big. Um, How long did it take to sell out? Um, it, it, it Truthfully, it has not sold out, but I made my money back and more, like, almost right away. Yeah. So I felt good about that. I think the reason I think it's too much because it didn't sell out. Um, now, Clothesline Girl, I just did her and she was on at crime and canvas mm-hmm. and she um and they had an ap they had a good um crime on canvas for people who aren't familiar <laughs> is um part of the life is beautiful festival in las vegas i uh, was curated by the um m modern gallery and i mean when I, michelle yeah, yeah yeah and and what what was i didn't do it this year i did it the year before and when I'd heard about the shooting in Vegas, I, I was immediately mm. like, oh my gosh, what I, was life is beautiful this weekend? And I started to really panic because I would have known, you know, hundreds of people that would have been there, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's not that it's any less of a tragedy, but it was less personal. And yeah. that, um, that it, w- it really kind of, it, it scared me immediately. And, and that was as I was driving in to do press for the Tiki show wow. on a Monday. And, of course, all the coverage went away yeah. because... This right. is a horrific, terrible event, and, yeah. and all the news was covering it. But for that show, which is interesting because it's it's an art show in a music festival, right? And it's a you just don't know who's going to walk walk in this building and buy stuff. And I sort of felt like it's maybe too much of a distraction. But um, for Prince, for Prince, it's probably a pretty good show because it's affordable. I think it's the perfect show because. I, I'm just guessing, but I think a lot of people there aren't thinking about buying art, yeah. per se. And then, like, what do I do with this? I want to go see the next band. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, I don't want to walk around with, with, with a, a 20 by 30 painting or something. Exactly. Or even a print in a tube. It's like you don't necessarily want to walk around with that at a festival. So it's there's that aspect to it as well. And, and I mean, it's, it's Vegas, so you're not necessarily staying right next to this festival, which is downtown. It's, yes. it's like most people don't stay downtown. You know, they stay in, in kind of the nicer places. But the um, so it's a very, that's a sort of interesting aspect to it as well. Right, right. 
But um, on that one, I think I did 25. Mm-hmm. Um, so I decided to go less, 20 or 25. And did you go to a bigger size paper? No. What's inter- it's interesting you said that. I um, I actually talked to somebody named Belinda Chun. Do you know her? She has Gallery House in Toronto. And she does all of Ray Caesar's stuff. And she was advising me to go smaller because um, she thought it would sell easier. And I have yeah. to tell you, it did. Yeah, eight it, by ten is easier. Yeah, yeah, it was. Well, the, I well, this is the irony. I went eleven by fourteen because the um, Black Swan was sixteen by twenty. Yeah, and so I decided to go down. But I always want to pick a size like that. Aaron Brothers has frames in. Yes, and I'm going to give you more but advice. They don't have that. They have that. Fr- well, they have that frame, but it's rare. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's here's another so. one. So you also, if you can. And, and this is a great advice for artists out there in Prince because I learned this. And actually, I learned it before we did the Prince for Lindsay Way. Right. Pick a size you can mail easily. Oh, that's it. <laughs> that fits inside nudge. a standard size yeah. USPS shipping box so that you don't spend all month making custom packaging yeah. for something. So like we, we did the 8x10s, which fit into the standard That's priority envelopes with a couple yeah. of pieces of cardboard. And then the larger size fit into the larger size right. um, um, mailing um, box. Right. So it, if you went 16 by 20 custom packaging. Yeah, it was a headache. In fact, the first packaging and of cardboard that. isn't free. You know, I'm not the type you want to <laughs> pack stuff in. I mean, I got pretty creative towards the end as we were running out of cardboard for, for some of the bigger ones that were going internationally. Right. Because you couldn't use the same packaging to send internationally. Yeah. Or it would cost a fortune. And people are like, I'm not paying $50 for shipping a $90 print. Well, and with me, because I care about the paper, I'm not, yeah. you know, ever picking the cheapest paper. So sadly, they're not that easy to roll. Yeah. Yeah, so you can't I always roll ha- them. Yeah. So I learned the hard way on the first group. I tried rolling them. Yeah. And, you know. They'll kink. Yeah. No, I got a few got botched. And the ink will chip off. Yeah. It's, and there's also another thing which a lot of people don't realize. If you are rolling any poster, um, a lot of times, if, if you're in like an art gallery, you see they will put like a piece of that um, tissue on uh, top of the um, the poster, right? Don't do that. Okay, because that, that tissue will it. divot directly into the ink and it will flake it. Yeah, that's... and it'll actually cause a crimple in in certain types oh, of wow. paper. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I sort of learned with trial and error. Hashtag gallery problems. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, um, and then I, you know, I've been making T-shirts. Yep. Um, I'm wearing one. That one's been. It's funny. It was sort of my first one, and yeah. it was sort of a good one right out. Yeah, out of right, the out, right out the box. <laughs> and then you also did you did an air freshener that when I brought my car in to get fixed, the mechanics were like, "Do you sell these?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, let me ask. Let me ask Deirdre if she has any these." And you also didn't put your name on it. Well, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I'm learning. I'm learning. Yeah, I'm getting better. The uh, this is it's this great um, like female skeleton air freshener. It's just beautiful, and it looks like something out of the Victorian era when they really probably could have used an air freshener, <laughs> um, if not one for cars. But um, and they these mechanics were just they took pictures of it and they posted it on like on their own <laughs> website because I I also have this like terrible air freshener. That's shaped like a dollar sign, which I think is ridiculous. Like it's it's so stupid that I think it's awesome. And um, I got it at like a car wash or something. And now they no longer make the, the uh, size that right. fits comfortably inside of it. And so it's now just like a stupid ornament that hangs around my my um 
my rearview mirror, and that, but it also it made my car easy to find. So like <laughs> when I had um, a Honda, a white Honda, you'd go into a parking lot anywhere in Southern California. There's white Hondas everywhere. Right. So finding your car is a problem. Now I've got you know a black A3, and they're <laughs> everywhere in Southern California. So it's a good thing that I have this again, and I can never remember my license my license plate. <laughs> But your your air freshener is right in front of it, and so that helps me spot my car. And so it's it's this thing that they they just fell in love with it. And I guess you ran out of those really quickly. Yeah. And the other thing I did is um, it's not along those lines, but it's a little, but I tried to do jewelry. I tried mm-hmm. to three D print some of like I had this one um, called Flower Girl, and it was a girl like mm-hmm. that looked like a her head was a flower, and I thought that would be a cool thing. So I took a little venture into 3D printing, but that's another ball of wax. Yeah, I mean, was... my, my wife does a lot of, of jewelry, obviously a lot of jewelry stuff, but she does a lot of 3D printing. Yeah. And it's, um, she uses Shapeways. Shapeways are great. Yeah. Um, Her work there's... is beautiful, by yes, the way. Yes, I, I will agree. I, I, I can agree quite egolessly <laughs> because I have nothing to do with it. But, um, you know, there's there's also that, that vendor, um, is a classic hardware that I don't she know. licenses I, a lot of stuff, oh. and so she produces jewelry that has um, that has artwork on it. She's worked with Vicky Burnt, and she's worked with um, with quite a few other people. I'll, I'll be happy to put you in touch with her yeah, because I, I think that, that you are a natural for what she does. Yeah, I would then love it's that. not you storing stuff and right, and right, having exactly. To, print each individual piece and yeah. assemble it because it gets complicated. Yeah, it definitely gets complicated. Yeah, so. Um, but the truth is I love the paintings. I mean, yeah. that's what I love. And yeah. I can spend forever <laughs> painting and using egg tempera and doing that whole number because um, it's sort of like meditation for me. You know, yeah. it takes – it's funny. I've tried to teach egg tempera to a few of my oil painting friends, and the, <laughs> the learning curve is so high yeah. that they just get they give frustrated. Up. And and these are great artists. These yeah. are and so I, I'm always sort of stunned. Um, well, getting them to go from oil to acrylic when they used to push and paint yes. around for days and days, and then they they leave for a couple of days and they come back and they're like, ah, yeah. I can't do anything with acrylic. It's 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 hard. It's yeah. it's dry. I can't do anything. And um, you you'd see you always see oil painters, you know, hitting. <laughs> Hit with the little spray bottles yeah. and just pushing the paint around a little bit more, and they can, yeah, I'm gonna take a week off. I'm gonna go, you know, camping. They come back, <laughs> spray bottle, push the paint around a little bit more. So yeah, it's it's a discipline. It's a any different process is a different process, and you can be an excellent oil painter and be terrible with charcoal. You know, you can have yeah. incredible drawing skills and just not comprehend paint. Yeah. You know, because you're yeah. using different tools. A pencil is different than a pen is different yeah. from a brush, even a single hairbrush and just the, the way that you stroke. And then people who are layering and doing their underpaintings and then painting on top is like a very specific discipline because they want a specific luminosity. And you know, I used to always tell a lot of people that I thought that their work would look better highly glossed, that it would be easier to sell if it was highly glossed. Hmm. And they would fight me on it because they're like, oh, I'm going to lose too much detail. And I'm like, then you're not really painting it well enough. Right, right. You know, it's like right. you should be doing an underpainting and you should be painting on top of that and then it can take any surface. And they, they didn't want to admit that the um that it, it loses a certain they're like I don't like the look of that high, highly reflective and it's because they've they've clearly varnished and the detail went away. Yeah. They gotta put more work into it and they don't want to. <laughs> you know, I mean and I, I understand it's like, you know, you, you gotta plan out the amount of time you put into a piece. But the the saleability pushes your price up. With you, I mean you've been like every piece you've ever shown is sold. 
So it's like you're not somebody who has inventory problems. <laughs> well, I almost have the opposite problem. I hate to. It's. It sounds like it's I'm, not a humble I'm, brag. I'm, it's I'm, not a humble brag. It's just a fact. I'm <laughs> but you know, if somebody calls me up and they want something, and there's a show, and I really want to be in it, many times I'm like, I sorry, no. but. Um, it's, you know, I never know what's going to sell. I'm always sort of blown away when um, the work sells, to yeah. be honest with you. so It's um, reasonable, too. I mean, the other, you, I think the most expensive piece that you sold in a gallery was in this show. Yes. The big, and it was Giant the big Girl. One. Yep. And um, an allegorical piece. And it also, you know, like we we're talking about, in something that it's, it's classical and that it's got tributes to Hieronymus Bosch, but it is... Um, predominantly um, one of your models and mm-hmm. she's just kind of like leaning forward on her on her elbows with her legs apart in the back uh, clothed and everything and and it's kind of it creates this image of what is that moment of adolescence into adulthood and how can I picture that without making the painting about that? And right. so you're using these symbols from other paintings, and especially Bosch, to bring in that id and bring in that psychology mm-hmm. that addresses these things while the girl is sort of a almost oblivious to what's happening, which is very much the female yeah. experience, right? Yeah, you know, it is. It has been. Yeah, I mean, that's the moment I'm so interested in as mm-hmm. an artist, and I feel like I'm always investigating that moment, yeah. which is... When a girl turns into a woman, like yeah. there's this, and, it, and it's very interesting because obviously for everybody it's different, but it's almost, the, there is a moment, but sometimes you don't notice it yeah. and you, you just sort of skim over. And I've had to really go back and think about that moment and think about other friends' stories and yeah. whatnot. But there's sort of an awakening that happens and it's not just about sex it's about there's a moment where I almost feel like there's something changes and yeah. I, I can't even I'm still actually trying to define it truthfully so in my work I'm constantly revisiting yeah I'm well tr- there's there's another an interesting thing and, and um there's a, there's a couple pieces in the current show and some pieces from past shows that I look at and I'm like that looks like Ava Ionesco who is kind of the symbol of Yes. Of being forced to grow up too soon. Yes. You know, um, in America, we, we might think of Brooke Shields in a certain context if she hadn't done other things beyond yes. that. But um, certainly in Europe, Ava Ionesco, um, the daughter of Arena Ionesco, right. who was the daughter of the playwright Eugene Ionesco. <laughs> um, so grew up in a very kind of surreal environment where children were treated like adults and, um, and caused I mean, it's very controversial, and um, I've spoken with with Ava Ionesco, um, not too much about her childhood, but more about her legacy. Mm-hmm. And she felt incredibly exploited as a child. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and um, and so all these books that came out were um, they tried to make the case that because. Um, she was presented like a naked adult, basically, and made up to look like an adult. There was a big push to to have that be considered child pornography. And there was the fight about, well, okay, well, what is artistic versus what is pornography? And it's a conversation that really hasn't happened often enough because yeah. state to state, it's very different. You know, there, um, there are certain states where um, certain depictions of certain sexual acts are considered a crime, yeah. Um, where it would be considered relatively normal um, 
pretty much everywhere else. I mean, you could almost say on the planet, but there's, you know, we can't say on the planet because there's places where everything is illegal. But, um, you know, that the argument was made that these were photographs of merit, but she was able to win the lawsuit to, um, that they're saying regardless of being um, imagery of merit, that if the model, the person depicted objects to it, then it can't be presented. And so what it turned out was that it wasn't really necessarily this big ethical argument is that she wanted control of the estate of her image. And then she published a book uh, of all of her own, mm-hmm. of the pictures of herself. So mm-hmm. she was able to profit from at least her, her in that. And I think but that's also a very important psychological step yeah. to say, I felt exploited. Now I own it. Now I'm releasing it, which frees me from this, this circle of exploitation that I am now the owner of my image and I choose to put it out there, right. which is right. very different from someone else putting, putting that out. So, it is a hard point to articulate, but there is also a chemical change that happens in sometimes in, in the physique and sometimes in the mind that triggers this change and the shift to adulthood. And I think with, with men, it's, it's a lot more obvious to us. Like we, our voices drop, like we wake up mm-hmm. one day and our voice is deeper. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, whether it's that, you know, you start to grow hair where you didn't have hair before. Right. But right. it is a really hard thing to articulate, not just looking a certain way, but becoming something else and your your view of the world changing because your view of yourself has changed. Right. And what's amazing is that you can see that in every single painting, regardless of the age depicted of the person in the work, right. that it is very much about, if, you know, if it's the girl riding the swan, it's the depiction of the girl riding the swan is, is very much in reference to a classical work, which in itself is addressing the transition into womanhood. And what what is a swan? A swan was an ugly, you know, the, the ugly ducking to the swan, you know, that right. baby swans aren't particularly good looking um, birds, I guess, and they become the most beautiful birds. Right. And um, so the, all this transition has very much been depicted um, throughout art history in various ways. And when you you add those elements, they are your own elements, and they speak to the symbolism rather than the composition. Right, right. Well, and even going back to that piece, it's a black swan. Yeah. And I, I apologize pur- for that I long ride around no, Harvey's no, no. barn to get there. But. <laughs> but I purposely used a black swan because that's a rare moment. Yeah. You know, it's, that's defined as a rare moment. And I do think that when that change happens, it's a rare moment. Yeah. It's very individualized and it's very unique to that, to each and each individual. But it's... A very profound moment. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that too is that, you know, in certain cultures that would be otherwise have been represented by a unicorn, which would right. then make it a fantasy painting. Right. Which then completely pulls you out of that that deep allegorical context. And so it's interesting that hint hint to fantasy <laughs> painters, if you exchange the unicorn for a black swan, you become a serious artist and you're not a fantasy artist. But I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. No, it's actually that's, um, so funny because I love unicorns and I keep trying to play with them. But it's um, impossible. It's impossible. Once you do that, you become that person. <laughs> now, you know, I've, I've got a really, really good friend and she only draws unicorns. Really? Yeah. Okay. My friend Cindy Parra is a genius and her whole her whole art, um, her whole philosophy is built around this idea of. Um, little girls love horses 
And yeah. so she she does her art under horse and unicorn drawings. Wow. The, that's the title, horse and unicorn drawings. Wow. You can go to horseandunicorndrawings.com. Cindy will thank me for this. And um, so her whole presentation is taking this kind of amazingly sweet and innocent thing and making it incredibly sexual. Yeah. So it's like unicorns with incredibly large genitalia <laughs> on top of other unicorns. <laughs> and like, just like, Sounds brilliant. it's so amazing. And I just keep waiting for, you know, the, the right blue chip gallery to come along and spot her and be like, she's a genius. Yeah. Like the, she's a, she's tackling something that nobody's tackling. The drawings are very simple and they're very rudimentary, but there's, there's something to it. And she's she went to the fine art department at Art Center, and I mean she's she's her composition is impeccable. But she's also very much of her presentation. Like there's a really kind of that girl likes unicorns, like right. like, like aspect to her. <laughs> she's got a very bubbly personality, but she's incredibly intelligent. So she can say things because she's got that voice and she's got that demeanor that that you don't expect her to say. And it, it becomes part of this package. And so what's what's interesting is as, as we take an incredibly large segue over into Unicorn Land, <laughs> you really do have to kind of commit yourself to something like mm-hmm. that. And it's hard to do because if you want to do anything else, you kind of can't. I guess that's true. I yeah. never thought about that. But you're either Greg Hildebrandt, <laughs> you know, or you're Greg Gibbs. I mean, it's right. like there's really not a lot of middle ground there. Like yeah. once, once you start doing fantasy art, you become known as a fantasy artist and museums won't touch you with a 10 foot pole. Yeah. Whereas if you're doing allegory and, and it's fine, I mean, the Hildebrand brothers are incredible painters as are many of the people who are, are, you know, involved in that kind of spectrum, um, fantasy art world, but it's just a harder, it's a harder ladder to climb. Well, I, I do try to actually going back to that dream diary book. I do sort of keep track of glyphs. Yeah, and um, I think I'm also very dyslexic. So for me, um, the it's like I even see words in English as symbols. Mm-hmm. And um, so the point is, I I like to I, I'm always looking for unique ones and different ones, but still in the collective unconscious, yeah. they ring true right yeah. away to people. Because um, I love Jung and all of that, so I I sort of do try. So it's interesting what you're saying because I do try to sort of find the more unusual ones and not what I would consider obvious, the obvious. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I do have a. That soft spot for unicorns. <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone's also gone towards the narwhal, like the, in, in an effort to to not, um, you know, become a unicorn artist. They've found other things that have horns, um, <laughs> right. and so you got like your whole dark art crowd that do the that do you know Baphomet or they do um, a uh, you know a goat or something, mm-hmm. or, and then you've got mm-hmm. like in the comical. You know, more illustrative, but like funny illustrative narwhals have become like yeah, a really I big love thing. <laughs> I really wish cool I could too. sell narwhals. I love narwhals too. I mean, I've never seen one. I, I don't know anybody who has, but the um, it's it's that that type of thing that again, you know, it's it's the unicorn of the sea, and and it's such a it, because it's you know, it, is it a mammal? Is a narwhal a mammal or is it a fish? I. I Thought it was a mammal, but I, I don't would, know. I would think so too. Like it, it, it seems like it would be, <laughs> like... you know, close to a whale and close to a, a dolphin. But I mean, <laughs> how little we know, how little right. we know about this thing. Well, before we started talking about unicorns, or actually before <laughs> before we advance beyond talking about unicorns, we're going to take our first break, and um, 
I want to remind advertisers that you too can reach this prime demographic. Uh, we do have some advertising packages prepared and um, we're really starting to push forward into launching a lot more social media events and uh, doing some live castings. So um, there are some big changes coming ahead and especially after this very long um, six week um, absence prior to the last episode, but we're back on track and um, and very thankful for your listenership. So um, please give an, uh, 60 seconds to our sponsors and we'll be right back on Pod Sequentialism with your host, Matt Kennedy, and my guest, Jared Sullivan Beeman. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy, and uh, we're here at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles talking to Dare to Solve and Beeman, who um, immediately after we stop recording this is actually going to have to run over to uh, La, La Luz de Jesus Gallery and start her um, her art exhibition walkthrough. She's doing a bit of a lecture and talking about maybe some of the stuff we're talking about here, <laughs> which she maybe <laughs> wouldn't have otherwise been speaking about, and um, and just kind of going through and looking at you know talking technique and about egg tempera. And we talked about the fact that you were you know kind of introducing oil painters to um, egg tempera and that they were really hard. To um to learn it to learn it yeah and what what are some of the the, the challenges and what drew you to it well so um there's a artist Maddie Kleinwen who was a sort of protege of Ernst Fuchs mm-hmm. and he did that it's a little before my time but I love the album the Santana album with um I should know the name of the album but it, it, it's just jumbled of women and all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff. It's like a Bosch painting. There's yeah. just so much going on. And I was really curious what his technique was because it was just very different. I knew it wasn't acrylic. I knew it wasn't oil. I couldn't really figure it out. Um, but the interesting thing is all through high school, my favorite artist was Wyeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was obsessed with Wyeth and um, Andrew Wyeth mainly. A little NC Wyeth, um, but I was just obsessed and I had no idea he was using egg temper I, I I was in high school and I was just I didn't realize that Wyeth was using yeah egg tempera. it's egg tempera wow yeah and some of it are watercolor washes but the paintings are egg tempera so much of it to me I associate with like Maxfield Parish mm-hmm. because of that same movement right right and with the illustrators yeah and, yeah wow yeah so I guess Sort of it all culminated um, when I was trying to figure out who to study with. And there was a guy named Robert Finosa who sadly has passed away. And about, I don't know, 10 years ago mm-hmm. now, I, I had been really trying to put my own school together. Yeah. And I was studying with everybody that I thought what I should be studying with. Mm-hmm. And so I flew to New York and studied with him and um, Martina, his wife, who's just another amazing artist. And I really fell in love with it. I was like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I'm looking for because I was trying to get an inner glow. Mm-hmm. And I'm such a huge fan of the French artists like Bouguereau and yeah. Jerome and those guys. And Bouguereau, um, when I went to the Dorsey one day, um, I swear his paintings weren't even lit on the wall. They were these huge, massive paintings, and they looked like they were glowing. Like, yeah. it was this amazing moment. And maybe being raised Catholic and, you know, thinking, like, things, you know, sort of have this spiritual glow. Right. I was like, whoa, what is that? So I realized um, when I started studying with Robert that there was a way to get this with a tempera. 
So I do do what some egg tempera artists would consider considered a bastardized version because I use layers of oil paint in between the egg tempera. So, and I'm literally sort of almost making a layer cake, and I start yeah. with the imprimatura which is the base paint, is actually oil. So mm. normally you would go, and egg temper is a water-based paint. Yeah. Normally you would go water, like acrylic or something, to oil. You never start mixing the two. But the method I learned is very sound. It's not fugitive at all, and it lasts forever. In fact, there's Egyptian tombs with yeah. this well, method. That's interesting because that, that now that I think about it, there's an aspect of cameo jewelry to oh. your paintings. Interesting. Which are layered mm-hmm. very much like that. That's really interesting. Yeah. And so like that white that glows off and, and I gotta say this too, that um that you use a lot of, of gold foil, but you use it well. No, there's no Or I use you use gold paint. Well I have I have put a little gold paint, but I haven't you know why I haven't done the foil? You told me not to not do to do it, yeah. Because it's like <laughs> Because of you I've stayed away. I've uh, been wanting to do it. It's so frustrating to work with number one. When I but, when um, I look at Brad Kunkel's work <laughs> Start yeah. salivating. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> for every Brent Kunkel, there's there's some people that we won't talk about. But um, and and the problem is that it's it's so overused. Yeah. yeah. Um, wrongly. Yeah. And when I when I look at your work, and it's funny that you and Carrie Ann Bada both both work in egg tempera, and she'll often paint on a metal surface. So she'll paint on copper. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. um, which. Oh, the cost of mailing that stuff, but the um, but the work is incredible, and she'll yeah, she does kind amazing. of like a, a art referential collage that she paints, and I mean the explanations for her paintings are like twelve pages long each. There's so well, much. She's a professor. She is <laughs> she's professor. Yes, very brilliant. And I'm like, I can't fit that on on a sticker. I'm sorry, Carrie. Uh, we're just gonna have to go with the title. <laughs> And can we have a link to? It? Yes, we can have a link to it on the website, and we're going to be showing her, you know, in May with um with another another guy who works a little bit in egg tempera, but but he works in everything is um, Patrick McGrath Manis. Oh yeah, who um relocated from Puerto Rico to Houston, and um and then you know went to went to Puerto Rico to to rescue his paintings before the hurricane hit. Oh wow! And then the storage in Houston flooded. Oh, that's horrible! And he lost a ton of work. Oh my gosh! Yeah, the wow. um, but the I mentioned her because um, she's the the only other person that I know that that can use a metal background like that mm-hmm. bright glow mm-hmm. of whether it's a copper or a bronze or a gold to to good effect because so many people just don't know how to use it. Yeah, you know? and it just looks like amateur night. You know, like with this, it'll be like a little gold vein going across. You know, going across something, and otherwise, it's like you'd have to almost do. You would have to do egg tempera because it has to look like watercolor so that you can see the gold beneath it. Yeah. But um, it's such a hard hard thing to pull off and, and you know, gluing that down and keeping it in place and, and it just like flakes off and drifts away and it'll peel. <laughs> right. You know, right. so it's kind of right. like then if you've painted over it and it peels, there's a piece of your painting missing. Right. Um, so I generally recommend against it, but you, you do it really well. And so I, it's sort of now like, oh, what would you do if you're doing it with, with foil? <laughs> but I still recommend that you stay away from it. Well, um, yeah, I have stayed away from it. But um, it's funny, talking about Carrie Ann Bada, though, she also um, sort of comes from the same group of painters. Yeah. Um, there's Lawrence Carrara, Amanda Sage, um, I mean, there's just sort of a whole group of them. Amanda worked, um, she was living in 
with in, Michael Fuchs, the brother. Yes, I mean the son, uh, son of Ernst Fuchs. Yes. Yeah, for yeah. Ye- for two years, yes. like working in that studio. Yeah. And I think 20 years before that, Laurie Lipton was working out of the Fuchs studio. Oh, interesting. I didn't yeah. know that about Laurie. And um, for a, a bit, I'm not sure how long. And then she went to England and was painting in that church, right. you know, forever. <laughs> People are like, hey, how come you're so good? Because I didn't go anyplace. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I just sat and I drew and I had no friends. And like... <laughs> But what's the trick? The trick is to not have any friends and to keep drawing for twenty years. And, you know, it's like, what do you? What do people expect? Oh yeah, there's this great shortcut. You don't have to study. You don't have to do any hard work. You right. can just, you know, magically. There's this this right pencil and this right paper that's going to make everything look like Lori Lipton. No, she's a she's a genius and she's incredibly talented. So yeah, there's. But I, I do know that Amanda was there and and. We were talking to Amanda about showing a long time ago, and it was just that she was constantly leaving the country. And then that the type of work that she does, it's very spiritual. Yeah. So it really has to connect yeah. with, with a kind of spiritual mentality. And our clientele either aren't necessarily that spiritual or the person who really appreciates that doesn't necessarily have the money for the price tag on her item in Los Angeles. So I think that if, if you have success in a certain area, I know it's always people want to have success in their hometowns. If you're selling paintings in, in Omaha and you live in LA, be happy you're selling right. paintings in Omaha. And if you're if you're getting good money for it and it allows you to keep painting, you know, sure, keep um, submitting to, to the galleries that you want to get into if you think that they're bigger and better galleries, but don't settle to go back to a smaller gallery just to show in a city that you want to show in mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it sends the wrong message about the trajectory of your career, um, as I interject a little advice. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the um, the Fuchs thing is, is, is kind of prescient. I think that the best painters have kind of understood the importance of his work and his studio practice. Yeah, well, he, you know, he had that dramatic mentality, so very yeah. strict and sort of intense. But he's interesting, too, because his parents were Jewish, and um, during the Nazi, he was hidden in a, um, 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 with a bunch of nuns and incumbent, and um, it sort of changed him. So it's interesting about his work, because you can see sort of the conflict mm-hmm. of both religions in his pieces. I mean, he does a lot of work of Jesus and... Mm-hmm. I mean, he's passed away now, but he he's a very interesting person and really in a, profoundly changed my style. And I decided to sort of go that direction because, um, well, the other thing I think I was going back to the religious element, I think being born Catholic but not interested in that as an adult and sort of dappling with Buddhism and other things, I think there's a side to that esoteric spiritual quality that he had in his work that I really loved and um, was hoping for bits and pieces of it mm-hmm. in my work. So I really found um, him very, I, I find his work very profound and interesting. I think if you move, <laughs> if you, <laughs> I speak from my own experience here. I, I think if, if you are raised Catholic as we both were yeah. and I mean, I, I think you hit like 12 or 13, you're kind of like, this doesn't make that much sense no. to me. Um, and, or at least, like, I understand faith as faith, but I think when you try and explain it in real world terms, or when you try and excuse explanations that were clearly written poetically as being fact, that that's where you start to run into problems. That if you don't try to do that, then there should be no problem. Right. Like, you can say, you know, that, oh, this passage is clearly not meant to be 
taken verbatim. This is poetic language, and we like the idea of it, and that helps me feel good about the world and the people I know and, mm-hmm. and love. Awesome. Love that. <laughs> if that was the extent of it, that would be great. It's when it's like, no, this is the word of God, you know, yeah. written by 500 different people whose names we don't know, and pieces were left out, and we put it arbitrarily together in this one book. And then we added this other book at the front of it so that it would make sense to other people is kind of, to me, um, worth a lot of study. <laughs> like, I, I love, I, I've delved into um, the history of the Bible and gone back, and I've, you know, I, I, I'm always pulling off my shelf the, um, the pseudo-epigrapha and going through different versions of the same story told by different people for different audiences. And of course it was. Of course it's different. It's for a different audience. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's cutting a different trailer for a different country. And, um, but I think that when you hit a certain age, and especially if you leave, if you, if you leave where you grew up and you grew up Catholic, then you become absolutely fascinated with, with other, um, say, not monotheistic religions. Because Buddhism isn't really monotheism. It's like it lacks all. Mm-hmm. The theism is you. There is no, right. there exactly. is no external. Exactly. That that becomes a very attractive thing because you don't have to depend on this dogma about this other stuff. There are cones and things that you can repeat and you are you're made, made are, um, uh, suggested to meditate about in order to right. find a, um, a, a, a closer connection to yourself in the world. But it's not as regimented necessarily. So we see these people that are monks that live in monasteries. They live these very simple lives. And, and you kind of look at it and you think, that's, that's a step too far. <laughs> you know, it's like you've kind of come from this very regimented, very dogmatic religion. And then you think you find this other thing, which is less regimented and less dogmatic. And it's even more Baroque in, in a great way. And that causes, I mean, for me at least, it was a, I became extremely fascinated with almost every other religion, and I tried my best to sit in, in on at least one mass of as many different, and, and whatever that mass may have been called, one, one temple meeting or whatever, with each different religion just to get a sense of it, if mm-hmm. it were allowed. And so, you know, I've, I've been to Mormon mass, I've been to um, Buddhist masses, I've, I've been to um, Jewish temple, um, I've been to Sikh, and I've been to... Um, a Muslim prayer meeting, Have and you been to Greek Orthodox. I've been to Greek, yeah, I've been, I've, been, I've been to Greek weddings, you know, in a Greek Orthodox church and Russian Orthodox, and I've even been to the um, American um, Catholic Orthodox Church, the right. ACOC, right. which is very interesting. Actually, speaking of Russian Orthodox, now I'm going back to egg tempera. A lot of those icons mm-hmm. are painted with egg tempera. Yeah. And the original, I mean, from the 14th century, there's icons still around that yeah. are in 100% egg tempera, and they're fine. They look yeah. as good as they were the day they were made. So it's sort of, you know, they might be a little dusty, but that's yeah. about it. So it's sort of interesting because that egg tempera yeah. lasts. It does. It's good stuff. <laughs> Well, you know what? I think we have to end here. You're going to be late getting to your event, but I want to, I want to thank you for coming in and talking about this stuff. And it's funny because, you know, when, when we, we start to kind of piece together a body work and we start to, to think of, you know, a collection of work as, as, one's, as one's oeuvre or body of work, you, you know, your catalog, that um, sometimes you see people that are really all over the place. And yours has always been pretty focused. Like it's, and I think it's the benefit of, of the way you chose to to follow your path of coming back around to do art, that you had 
a certain amount of life to think about mm -hmm. and then get back into it and then you knew you were focused. And I think the danger of art schools and in education in general is that higher education in the United States has to come immediately after high school. Yeah. You know, like they, they really push you into go, getting to college yeah, and then entering no the real world. Right. So in, in, you're then shielded from the world again for three mm -hmm. or four years, depending upon what school you go to, and then you know five or eight years, depending upon your degree channel. So by the time you finally hit the real world, if you're going for a doctorate, you know, you're, you're in your high 20s, your mid to high 20s, and you really haven't seen any of the world. Yeah. You know, and in art schools, since they, they tend to bank these semesters back to back to back, you don't even get like the long break. You know, you do three semesters a year instead of doing two terms mm -hmm. um, that I've always suggested if you can, you take a term off so that you can learn what you right. just learned Experience. and practice with it. But I think that if you get to it later in life, you're more focused and you, you kind of just know what you want. But do you think that as you as you move forward with with the direction that you're doing, that it's going to. Do you feel completely gratified in it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I. this is probably the best decision I made of my life. I almost wish I made it earlier. Right. I think there was a part of me, because my work, there's an intensity to it, that mm. I think I was shy from even the voice I had I can that see was that. in yeah, there. Yeah. So I think there was a side of me that held back a little bit. But I... I mean, I, I'm very pro, like I've, I try to recommend to everybody that wants to go into any of the arts to, to just take a stab at it. It's yeah. worth it. Um, I know sometimes parents will <laughs> poo poo it and say, no, 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 you, you need to be a doctor or something. But yeah. I think the truth is if that's your calling, it's going to actually pull at you until you actually do it. Yeah. And, you, and we also know, you know, you can you can be a professional and you can take an art class and that can be a little bit of an escape mm -hmm. that enriches you mm -hmm. so that you know what to do with your time off. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks again. Um, I hope everybody's enjoyed this conversation with um, Deirdre Sullivan Beeman. I know I did. And I, I definitely advise that you check out her show at La Luz de Jesus Gallery, which is L-A-L-U-Z-D-E. J-E-S-U-S dot com and you can type in her name Deirdre that's D-E-I-R-D-R-E Sullivan hyphen Beeman I, I, I spelled it correctly I've you spelled did. it wrong so many times <laughs> it's a tough one it is a tough one so uh, check out that show and even if it's not up we do have, we do keep an archive of, of the show's um, on the site and um, it, and if you're hearing this quickly enough then you might have the opportunity to buy one but I have a feeling as have all other previous shows that the work is already going to be sold out but you can still take a look at it um, can I give my Instagram account? absolutely please do <laughs> um, it's D Sullivan Beeman I cut the Deirdre part out it's too complicated um, on that handle and then my website is SullivanBeeman.com so excellent well, thanks for having me. My pleasure. This is great. This has been Pod Sequentialism. I've been your host, Matt Kennedy. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. 
And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.